This podcast has surprised even me because it's a complete surprise that this particular subject would come over me like a rush and a great kind of fountain or gusher, uh, and I'd like to talk about it. And it's going to go out as uh, under the heading Plymouth Adventure, an old Spencer Tracy movie um, by association with Thanksgiving and Thanksgiving of 2010. I had vowed to do nothing during the month of uh, November in preparation for something else, but today this particular theme really came upon me, and it's really uh, important. And I would like very much, uh, from my perspective, to put it out on a brief podcast. The theme is the uh, producer and uh, director of Hollywood uh, and New York television shows, the uh, uh, director and uh, founding uh, producer and concept driver of Dark Shadows, and later the the, uh, remarkable, uh, prodigious, and awesome uh, producer and completer of the epic miniseries' um, Windows of War and War and Remembrance in the 1980s, specifically Dan Curtis. Now, Dan <coughs> Curtis, whom I never met but really wish I had, uh, was uh, of immigrant parents uh, in Bridgeport, Connecticut, grew up early in the last century, and uh, uh, of uh, Jewish background, and yet uh, uh, that comes into it very definitely uh, later on. Uh, It uh, appears that he uh, grew up in a very tolerant and uh, uh, kind of a community where um, the anti-Semitism that many uh, Jewish uh, uh, newcomers to the United States in that early immigration period um, felt. It appears that he had a very happy uh, and uh, tolerantly um, loving background for the most part part, which he memorialized in two made-for-television movies later. But in any event, the reason I say it is because his nods to Christianity in a kind of bizarre, slightly overblown, and thoroughly delightful way that occur in his many made-for-television horror movies, uh, and also actually in um, The Winds of War and War and Remembrance, shared uh, somewhat by the uh, author of those books, uh, Herman Wilk. Um, Dan Curtis has a kind of broad, delightful kind of playful, childlike, visual tolerance of Christianity and Christian symbols uh, that uh, uh, nevertheless uh, does not get in the way of his doing in many ways, together with Schindler's List, possibly the uh, definitive Holocaust picture, which was War and Remembrance. Uh, I think it was roughly 29 hours of uh, of television brilliance and spectacular uh, visualization of World War II, and in particular, at its climax, the extermination camp of Auschwitz. But I'd like to just talk about my own enthusiasm for Dan Curtis. He um, began uh, uh, as a a producer of uh, television shows of golf tournaments, and uh, uh, these uh, were successful. And so he had this idea, which I find absolutely wonderful, to produce a soap opera, a daily five-day-a-week television soap opera made in New York City as they were then in the mid-1960s, many of them at least, most He wanted to produce a soap opera with a strong gothic horror flavor. It was a a never-before-done thing. I mean, it may have been in the the gleam in its parents' eye somewhere in some earlier formats, but it had never been done directly to take the soap opera five-day-a-week romantic format, basically uh, shows designed for women who were staying at home and watching these things, uh, soap operas, uh, with the gothic horror format. And he had this inspiring, 
inspired idea to bring the two together. Well, he had an instantaneous hit with the first season of Dark Shadows, and then he had a further inspiration. Instead of it just being what used to be called bodice rippers and uh, sort of uh, uh, tortured uh, Jane Eyre-type uh, American females caught in Gothic places like Collinsport, Maine, and the uh, big, huge house of, uh, of the Collins family, he decided to throw in a vampire. And so he got a Canadian actor, Shakespearean actor, Jonathan Frid, who was fabulous. And to us today, looking at it, kind of really campy. It, it doesn't really quite make sense, the Jonathan Frid vampire, known in the series as Barnabas Collins. But it, at the time, it took off. And um, I think roughly something like over 1,200 uh, shows of the original Dark Shadows soap opera were produced day after day after day after day after day. They were produced and done and then aired the next day. And of course, it was uh, hell on the cast and on the staff and the producer. And he was involved. He directed many of them, but delegated a lot of them. And he created this fantastic cultural phenomenon of the 60s and 70s known as Dark Shadows. And I love it because it combines a kind of a middle class, if I can use that word, American kind of blithe um, approach to just daily living with gothic horror and thunderclaps and lightning and lycanthropy and uh, mummies and mainly vampires and possession and witches and ghosts. And it's really quite amazing. And there's a lot of religion in it, kind of a folk Christianity, which is really very dear, at least to someone who has a Christian background and very harmless and, and not at all dark. But the whole thing, of course, has a gothic component that is unmistakably cool and wonderful, and the fashions are never to be forgotten. Well, Curtis uh, delivered this mammoth success for his uh, his network, and <clears throat> then he uh, kept going and was interested in the horror genre, and he it was a little bit typecast, but he was actually interested in it, which it makes it so wonderful, and uh, he, he was from the heart with this thing, and he uh, he decided to, uh, it was it, a property was bought called The Night Stalker by uh, a guy named Jeff Rice, a very good book, by the way. I'm looking at the original movie tie-in copy. It's in my hands. And Curtis uh, uh, produced and didn't direct, but was right there. It was his. It was his baby. A television uh, movie uh, in the early '70s, very early '70s. It may have been just a shade before 1970. Called The Night Stalker, with a um, a reporter in Chicago. Uh, actually, it starts in Las Vegas and then moves to Seattle and ends up in Chicago with a long-running television show, or not so long-running in which a reporter named Carl Kolchak with a straw hat and a seersucker suit uh, solves a gothic horror uh, problems uh, brilliantly and with a kind of post-Watergate intrusive journalistic stance. He wants the truth, he's obnoxious, he's cynical, and yet he keeps coming across gothic horror, truly gothic horror in the Night Stalker. It was a, a Hungarian vampire who had emigrated into uh, Las Vegas, and in The Night Strangler, it was a kind of a Jack the Ripper, <coughs> Ripper a character who needed uh, the blood of uh, innocent victims every seven years or so to keep, and he was many hundreds of years old, and that was a fantastic script by Richard Matheson, and then it morphed into a television show, which Curtis didn't do, but the television show has the same kind of wry humor, a very friendly use of mostly, but not entirely, Christian symbols to fight evil, 
plus this wry, wisecracking, brilliant character uh, played by Darren McGavin of Carl Kolchak. Well, uh, this uh, kind of uh, ethos with Dan Curtis, he he seems to have been very comfortable just to continue uh, making these things, and he made a whole series, some of them made in England, of uh, television video videotaped um, sort of American versions of Masterpiece Theater, but nowhere near as sophisticated, but sort of soap opera-y versions of great horror classics, which really you have to see because they combine the kind of um, quick uh, shooting style of a television soap opera with tremendous talent, brilliant musical scores, always by the same fella, a guy named Robert or Bob Cobert, who originally we knew him as the author of the musical cues of Way Out with Roland Dahl that I've written about in the Zal file on uh, Lloyd Fonville's Marta Cortez, uh, wonderful, passionately engaged, visually exciting, and really sublime website called www.mardecortezbaja.com as the C of Cortez of uh, John Steinbeck, uh, Cannery Row fame. In any event, um, uh, he um, did this uh, series, and then he did a series, as I said, of, of uh, mostly uh, on-location English but stage shot classics, The Strange Tale of the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, um, The Turn of the Screw with Lynn Redgrave, which is sort of not, doesn't work, but is really, because of its fluid camera movements and its, as I say, its sort of soap opera style with its gothic cue or its gothic instinct is a fantastic exercise, although a, a flawed one, a dated one, but I must see The Turn of the Screw with Lynn Redgrave. He did a Dracula with Jack Palance that has a conclusion for the ages. The final scene in the in the Castle Dracula where Nigel Hawthorne and, uh, oh, that actor who played Winston Churchill, Nigel something or other, uh, Nigel McCulloch, that's not it. No, he was a bishop somewhere. But anyway, um, the uh, the concluding uh, scene of uh, the spearing of the Jack Palance romanticized vampire is really, really marvelous. Well done. His Dracula, he did, let me see, a picture of Dorian Gray, which is excellent. And there's one other. It'll come back to me. And after that, he kept doing made-for-television movies. He did one called Scream of the Wolf, which is excellent, kind of his werewolf take, which is what is, I guess, called a shaggy dog story, but very... Very well done. And he directed, let's see, um, something called Curse of the Black Widow, which is kind of a giant spider movie with a feminist tack, which is excellent, with uh, with um, Patty Duke, and uh, so on and so forth. I have them all here. He directed a, a feature film with uh, Karen Black and um, Oliver Reed uh, called Burnt Offerings, which is a movie, a, a horror movie. I one saw it in the theater in New York. Uh, it's excellent, just shockingly scary. But always, uh, you can always tell a Dan Curtis uh, production by its low angles. He always he's talked about it extensively. Low angles, he feels that that gets more interest. A raking camera, as he calls it, which is not exactly a pan and not a zoom, but a camera that's constantly moved on a dolly, sort of like a, but like a television camera. It's you can just tell it's being uh, it's being actively moved around by somebody behind it. This definitely a kind of TV quality, although Burnt Offerings is very high-gloss, high-production. And uh, then he did a, his most notorious film uh, is really is called A Trilogy of Terror with Karen Black, the very cult, cultish, uh, sexy brunette actress who starred in many of these movies in that day, uh, including Family Plot by Hitchcock. But A Trilogy of Terror has a notorious concluding episode about the Zuni doll that comes alive and uh, is a, a vehement killer and uh, really 
amazing movie with low-cal special effects, no computer imaging at all, just a little handheld puppet. But it is one of the most frightening things you will ever see. And it was also a made-for-television movie, which he later remade in the 90s, uh, Trilogy of Terror 2 with Lizette Anthony, who played in the poor, hapless heroine of Dombey and Son. And, and not so good there, but she was a star of these movies. And she was in Trilogy of Terror 2, which has which is an absolute home run. It was produced and directed by uh, Dan Curtis and shot in places I well know and love in Toronto, just as Night of Dark Shadows. The movie version, which I had forgotten to mention, which is fabulous, was shot in our parish in Scarborough, New York, in which the, the place where we used to have wedding rehearsals and wedding receptions called uh, Lindhurst in Terrytown, no longer, but those were the days, uh, is used as the uh, Collins Mansion. And all the interior shots are done where we used to have wedding rehearsal dinners and receptions and loved that place. And there it is. And then he did one called House of Dark Shadows using Lindhurst again with the same crowd, wonderful actors like Thayer David and Grayson Hall, and Lewis Edmonds, and of course uh, the very famous actress uh, who forgets, who plays Mrs. Collins, who I've forgotten, who was in so many film noirs, her name will come back to me, wonderful Hollywood actress. And uh, uh, Jonathan Frid, of course, and Lara Parker as the witch, and uh, a wonderful uh, woman whose name escapes me with a double-barreled name, who played the sort of beloved of centuries, Jacqueline Dupre, who is now in a new body in the 70s. Uh, and it has scenes that it goes between thrilling horror, wonderfully shot, long climactic scenes, and soap opera discussions, you know, as in, uh, hey, uh, Wendy, uh, what do you think's the matter with uh, Bill? You know, I, I think he's become a, a vampire, uh, uh, John. Uh, uh, the, he has these two things in his neck. Oh, my gosh, a vampire. Uh, uh, Monique, what do you think about it? You know, I don't really have an opinion yet. He has been acting strangely. But I'll bet, you, um, I'll bet you Susie has a little bit of insight in that. You know, so it has these kind of dialogues that are unbelievably funny and yet completely hooking if you have an eye for irony that is real and serious. And the scene in which Nancy Barrett uh, is... Uh, staked by the local highway patrol in Collinsport, Maine, all looking like people in chips or, or escapees from the wonderful movie Blackula, but they're dressed up as sort of California uh, patrolmen, although it was filmed in Westchester County, and they're they're all coming upon her with uh, with uh, issue, police issue, wooden crucifixes that are too large and yet too small. Too large to really do the job, but too small to be tasteful. But it's somebody's idea of what they would do if they were using these kind of, they look like lollipop sticks put together uh, popsicle sticks as crucifixes, and they get Nancy Barrett. It's an amazing sequence. So again, you have those movies, then you have the ones he made in England that I mentioned, the classic horror ones, and then you have the Kolchak, and then he did these sort of individual ones I mentioned. Um, I've got them all here, uh, including Burnt Offerings. And then he did, because he was very successful, a series of really um, touching sort of personal romances uh, made-for-television movies, and now because Cable was coming in and made-for-television movies, movies were no longer the big thing that they'd been when he was uh, in the 80s. Then he starts in the 90s and even earlier doing sort of movies for the Hallmark Channel. He does, uh, he actually does something called When Every Day Was the Fourth of July, which is a lovely movie really about his childhood, which he narrates. And then one called The Long Days of Summer, which does touch on some of the uh, the themes of, of uh, 
of Jews in small town America um, in the time of uh, of uh, Dan Curtis's upbringing, a benign, realistic, beautifully done. We would pre- call them pretty uh, saccharine. I don't think they are. I think they're fabulous. And note that raking camera, those uh, that constantly moving camera, but it's not jittery and anxious. It's just a sort of perspective on the action that is really thrilling and always recognizable. And then at the end of his career, he did um, his. He died not all that long ago. And just before he died, he did the only made-for-television movie I'm aware of on the Roman Catholic Church uh, clergy abuse scandal, uh, the sex abuse scandal of uh, involving priests and small boys, acolytes. And it, you know, I haven't seen it yet. It's coming very soon. It's the one I haven't seen. And I, I gather it's very sympathetic in its own way and very wonderfully uh, um, good taste. And the camera refrains from showing more than we need to see, but it's very clear. It was made, I think, in 2005, and I can't wait to see that one. But I've also so aware of one he wrote he did called the me and the kid he did uh, something called the love letter which is kind of a somewhere in timeish late hallmark thing about a couple who carry upon a correspondence over a hundred years but all of a sudden in the middle of the love letter with Jennifer Jason Lee, I think it is. Suddenly there's this mammoth World War II battle scene because uh, Curtis was extremely apt and capable in directing large numbers of extras. So all of a sudden in this sort of very, very milky, diaphanous, you know, oh my gosh, we used to, it would have been called in the old days a women's picture. And I guess it really still is if you're allowed to say it, but I won't say it. I'll just say it's a hallmark, uh, hallmark uh, romance uh, sentimental thing based on a story by Jack Finney of uh, a man today who falls in love with a woman back at the Battle of Bull Run. And it's really, I think there was an X-Files episode based very similar to it. It's actually extremely good. And then he did something called Saving Millie about a a woman who is very much loved by her husband who gets a terminal disease. And it's really very touching and marvelous. And that's late Dan Curtis. He was one of these guys who who never stopped working. Sort of like Thornton Wilder. He, he, death would hit him to him was just uh, uh, stopping. I mean, he did these made-for-television and other movies till the day he died, almost to the day he died, and then his wife died, and he was deeply in love with his wife, and he died, I think, just a few weeks after she passed away in California, and it's a very touching story, and you can read a good account of the funeral conducted by a uh, rabbi uh, and a very touching series of tributes uh, in a a McFarland Press fairly new book, uh, a biography of uh, Curtis in a book called, I think, The Television Horrors of Dan Curtis. It's a very good book. Almost, It is a Ph.D. dissertation. It's not flaky. It's serious stuff. And the account of his funeral is very touching. But in the middle of it all, or towards the end of it all, comes something that is really of interest to me as a person who'd like to be a creator and uh, um, tries a little bit hither and yon and really wishes I were uh, able to be more of a creator in the arts. But uh, the chips have fallen where they may, and I have to accept that and look at it today But uh, in terms of my own life. But Curtis did an extraordinary thing. He got the opportunity of a lifetime in the early 1980s when he was asked, I think it was by ABC, I hope I have that right, to uh, to do uh, a uh, large, spectacular, well-funded mini-series, as was very common in those days, like Roots and the Thornbirds, you know, things like that. <clears throat> You've seen them. But in those days, uh, he got this go-ahead, this invitation to do Herman Wouk's uh, uh, passionate, lengthy prelude to another, even larger novel called War and Remembrance by Wouk. 
Curtis was asked to do The Winds of War, and he produced it. He was given the green light not only to do it, but to produce it. And it was a mammoth success. I believe it had the highest ratings of any TV uh, miniseries in that period when they abandoned it, and it was an enormous success. And, uh, but it was a very different kind of thing, because although it drew on his ability to handle action sequences effortlessly, to be, have a very fluid camera, and his incredible work ethic and discipline, which meant that he just basically worked every single day of his life. It just poured off him. Unknown, who I mean, who ever heard of Dan Curtis? I mean, if you heard, you've heard of William Wyler, right? Um, you've heard of uh, Steven Spielberg, but you haven't heard of Dan Curtis, uh, unless you're an aficionado. But he was given this amazing opportunity, and he seized it. And at 180 degrees or 360 RPMs or whatever the right word is, he... Uh, he took that, and uh, uh, with hundreds and hundreds of scenes from this very complex sort of American war and peace type novel of Wook, which is an excellent novel, and he got Wook to agree to do it because Wook was very leery about it because of bad experiences with Marjorie Morningstar and Young Blood Hawk and what is it the other big one, Kane Mutiny. He was very leery to let his work go to Hollywood, but he liked Curtis, and Curtis had a feel for the material, which shows. And uh, Wook wrote the teleplay, and then on the second run, which was uh, War and Remembrance, the second big production, Wook. Wrote relaxed a little bit and let Dan Curtis and one and another writer named Earl Wallace, who had worked on a number of the horror made-for-television movies, which I admire so and think so highly of. So Earl Wallace and Dan Curtis helped, got a little bit of input on the script from War and Remembrance by Herman Wook. Now, the uh, if you see it, War and Remembrance, I've just finished it. It's about, what, 13 hours, something like that, maybe a little less, maybe 11. Uh, that is a uh, absolutely, overly, I mean, completely successful uh, uh, take a uh, visual understanding of Wook's uh, enormously ambitious, really great great, maybe too strong a word. I mean, is it Dombey and Son? I don't know. Is it uh, By Love Possessed? Nicht, uh, nicht klar, but uh, nicht bestimmt. But nevertheless, it's a very, very fine and perceptive and uh, ambitious, wonderful visual novel. And so, uh, uh, with a few casting errors, I mean, some people think Ali McGraw isn't very good as Natalie Jastrow. I disagree, by the way. Some people think that uh, Jan Michael Vincent is Byron Henry, who plays a key role, who marries uh, the Jewish girl, Natalie, because the whole thing is really about the Holocaust, ultimately, uh, and very brilliantly and touchingly and affectingly and well put together um, by the uh, uh, maybe a couple of casting mistakes. The Hitler in Win, uh, uh, Winds of War is a little hackneyed, to say the least. You know, you'll see it. Um, you probably saw it when it came out, but it is very good. I mean, we all saw it when it came out, as we did War and Remembrance. It's outstanding, and it's rather noble, and it touches all the religious bases. It it obviously focuses, because this is Wook's interest and Curtis's sympathies, uh, with the extermination of the European Jewry. And that is a story that he tells with extraordinary, unflinching, unsentimental um, truth and uh, a brilliant visual sense. The scenes in Auschwitz are beyond gripping. I I, uh, I think uh, Schindler's List is very, very fine, uh, but I personally would put, um, I, as a whole picture of the whole thing, with a tremendous <clears throat> hat that is doffed to Gentiles. I think that <clears throat> War and Remembrance and the Winds of War is very, very fine indeed. Now let me say a couple of things about that. Uh, Dan Curtis took an enormous property, and he basically distilled it, but without cutting very much, and uh, he filmed the book, uh, which is so fantastic. And there are a couple of extraordinary things about these two epic, uh, inspired productions of Curtis with, with Wook's material. Uh, the first is you see... <clears throat> 
the relations between the sexes, especially in the sort of, there are two narrative families. There's the, uh, there's the Henry family, an old sort of waspish uh, Fox Hall Road, Washington Navy family uh, with long antecedents uh, in the armed forces and a tremendous sense of duty and a very, very explicit Christian faith and morality, especially in the Robert Mitchum played character Victor Pug Henry, uh, the Captain Henry, and that is an amazing story. But in his and his relationship with Rhoda, uh, and his relationship with someone called Pamela Tudsbury, and Rhoda's relationship with someone named Kirby Palmer, uh, you have in a trice the um, the male female relationship of life. This uh, novel unflinchingly and accurately describes what I could never talk about in in parish ministry because people would immediately say I was exaggerating, or they would they would get anxious or priggish or nervous. And so you just don't talk about it because even though it's a key fact of human experience, uh, you, you, people become just they – they can't handle it. And I accept that. Um, but it means that you're often not really telling the whole truth about human experience and existence. And when you touch on these truths in sermons, you, most people are just cut to the core and interested and attracted because finally you're talking about real things as, for example, T.D. Jakes, the great black preacher, does. He doesn't mince words, but in his culture he's able to. And the sort of Gentile middle class or upper middle class culture of, of churches, working, middle, upper middle, you name it, in this country at least, you can't really talk about relations between the sexes with reality. Uh, there are so many concepts and ideas and uh, certain things you have to doff your hat to that you end up uh, giving a, really often an illusory or pablum, at best uh, an innocuous, at worst a, a positively uh, wrong-headed and ultimately damaging view of, of the truth of human life as it relates to men and women. And Wook is brilliant on this. He understands about Episcopalianism. He stages an extraordinary wedding in Pensacola, which is brilliantly done, by the way, uh, not filmed in Pensacola, but done with an Episcopal minister who's perfectly attired, cassock and surplus in those days, not stole, uh, perfectly attired without communion. I mean, he shows, uh, Wook has obviously been to naval weddings at Episcopal churches in the era of World War II, because Curtis, without flinching, shows it as it actually was, not as we might like it to be or wish it to be, but as it actually was. And so uh, anything that has to do with Gentile Christianity uh, in the churches is really accurately portrayed from Catholicism down to you name it, anything you want. He doesn't understand evangelicals, and they don't make much of an appearance in this great uh, duo book, Winds of War and uh, War and Remembrance, but he does understand Christians and Christianity, and he also understands relations between the men and the women, especially in Gentile culture and society, and it's really extraordinarily powerful and affecting and interesting and true, and sort of, oh, you take a deep breath, uh, you say it isn't so, uh, but he also understands the sort of cued-in, vital relationship between the sexes that occurs and ethnicity, and certainly in the uh, Jewish world that he's portraying so uh, very poignantly with Natalie Jastrow and her uncle Aaron and Avram Rabinowitz and the many, many uh, characters who uh, are come into it on the Jewish side. It's an amazing thing. So that's one thing, and Curtis captures it perfectly. Secondly, he shows the metamorphosis of an old man uh, who seems at first to be a rather sort of, um, I don't know, waspy, not waspish, but the, the old prof Jewish professor, wasp 
wolfish, agnostic, uh, waspy, uh, academic, uh, sort of high table pleasantries, little in-jokes, acerbic uh, thoughts and sarcastic words masquerading as bomo. I mean, the kind of thing you've run into a million times in academic life, and you gradually find out that this 75-year-old man is a very, very deep-running fellow who has an awful lot to think and an awful lot to say and observes everything and misses nothing. And finally, he shuffles off a great many of his former interests, some of which include Martin Luther and uh, the so-called third quest for the historical Jesus in a devastating passage on both those particular interests. Um, but he sort of shuffles off old interests under the threat of extermination, which actually comes his way and becomes a sort of saintly, true man gone back to roots. It is an amazing portrayal of, uh, in a way, on that particular side of the religious uh, context or divide, you even might say, uh, uh, Aaron Jastrow, played by John Gilgood in one part of the thing, and John, Donald um, 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 oh, Hausman, John Hausman in the uh, Winds of War. That character reflects uh, Eliot's enormous truth, old men should be explorers. And finally, um, there's something about the way that all the false alternatives, false hopes, and false possibilities of the uh, Jews stranded in continental Europe are gradually pulled away one after another, and they realize that, that they've got to do it for themselves. No one is going to help them but themselves. And that is a devastating thing if you've ever felt persecuted in a much lesser, much milder, and in totally different key, but nonetheless, if you've ever realized that, that, they, that, they, that they're that they not after what you think, they're after what who you are, whatever form that may take, and that's a rude awakening for the characters, at least many of the characters, not all, but many in uh, uh, War and Remembrance, and it can be a rude awakening for anybody. So, Curtis ended up uh, his career uh, by doing uh, War and Remembrance and Winds of War. War and Remembrance is 29 hours. I've seen it, you've probably seen it, and it's just astonishingly complete picture, and you're wrung out at the end, but you feel you really have understood World War II and not just the Holocaust and not just the Battle of Stalingrad or the Battle of the Normandy, the Operation Torch, but you feel like you've understood um, uh, the Battle of Midway and the Battle of Lady Gulf and the uh, Pearl Harbor He he he, because he was a naval officer. And I met him once. I uh, Wook, in this case. I actually had dinner with him years and years ago at the Naval War College in uh, Newport, and it was an amazing experience, but I was not at that point at all uh, keyed into anything he was talking about except his reminiscence of service in the Pacific with the U.S. Navy in World War II on a minesweeper. Well, that's all I have to say. The main thing is that uh, when you see the interviews with Dan Curtis, you see a man who is so full of life. He started out with this incredible, powerful interest in the supernatural and the gothic horror, and he parlayed it, and he never, he, he didn't try to become something he wasn't. He just did it, and he kept doing it, and he kept finding new corners and new angles and new approaches, and there's nothing like his, uh, his uh, things. There's just nothing like his uh, from the Night Stalker to to to, um, to uh, Turn of the Screw to uh, Curse of the Black Widow, uh, these are amazing. Uh, plus his autobiographical later television movies. Uh, but the great achievement is Winds of War and War and Remembrance. And this man uh, rose to an occasion. Don't you wish you could rise to an occasion? Don't you wish you were given an opportunity? I was talking to a guy the other day who's been sitting tight in a thankless job somewhere for ten years, and is is really moping and sad and doesn't like it. It's having a terrible time, and I completely was sympathetic. My heart went out to him. 
And I just thought to myself, you know, if only this man could be given the affirmation that he uh, would receive by being offered or uh, sought after for a new position. Maybe not a not this, not a, a, a upper move, but an interesting new move, a, a, a different kind of service, uh, a different sort of take on what he's been doing for all these years. He would just turn into a different person. He would he would just rise to it. I could just see it happening, and I just felt so badly. And here, this wonderful guy who just kept plugging away in gothic horror, that is Dan Curtis, offered the thrill of a lifetime, and he rises to it, and doesn't just rise to it, he rises way, way above it. It was as if he were imputed, to use the old language of Christian uh, Protestant orthodoxy and, and St. Paul in the New Testament. He was imputed uh, as the man who could do this job based on a proven and faultless and realistic track record of made-for-television horror movies, and it was imputed that he could pull this thing off, and he not only did it, but he pulled it off and made one of the great achievements in the history of American television, and possibly in the history of American popular culture, because they are absolutely flawless, with the exception of some casting problems, things that, that didn't work out that way. But what are you supposed to do when you have 365 speaking roles? You know, you're bound to make a few mistakes, and uh, they tried to rectify most of those mistakes in The Second Wind, which was uh, Warren Remembrance. Anyway, that's my talk on a remarkable man. Lessons learned, uh, cash value, takeaway. Uh, keep doing what you love. Don't ever do anything you don't love. Do what you do love, and it'll come back to you. And if you really love what you do love, as Jack Kerouac would have said, if it's really the essential you and not some kind of thing that's been foisted upon you by other forms of guilt, demand, or obedience, if it's something you really love to do, um, sort of by the law of attraction, greater things will be given. Jesus said that the, you know, take your seat at the at the back of the table. So when the the master says, "Friend, come up higher," you haven't tried to grab your seat, but you're brought up higher. And that's very much uh, the, the, the head of the feast will bring you up. You don't need to worry if you just do what you love. And out of this came one of these uh, magnificent achievements of modern American life, which is winds of war and war and remembrance. I wish I could be like Dan Curtis, and I sure wish I'd met him. Thank you so much for listening, and this has been Plymouth Adventure, a Thanksgiving surprise from PZ's podcast. God bless you all.